Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. I am Shivangi Paudyal. In today's episode, we have PEI colleague Kushi Hang in conversation with Bhupesh Adhikari on the air we breathe, understanding Kathmandu's air pollution problem. Bhupesh Adhikari is the senior air quality specialist at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, ECMOD, Kathmandu. He's also working on understanding the science and mitigation aspects of air pollution in the Hindu Kush Himalaya region using chemical transport models, in situ and satellite-based observations. He previously worked for EVK2CNR committee as their resident scientific coordinator. Bhupesh also worked at Kathmandu University as an assistant professor for several years teaching graduate and undergraduate students. Kushi and Bhupesh embark on a comprehensive exploration of the city's alarming air pollution problem. They tap into Bhupesh's expertise as an atmospheric scientist to discuss the current sources of pollution, the seasonal intricacies affecting the atmosphere, and the city's unsettling ranking among the world's most polluted places. Bhupesh also sheds light on health risks, socioeconomic repercussions, and the vulnerability of specific urban populations. The episode further navigates the challenging policy landscape, scrutinizing state efforts, significant policy developments, and persistent challenges hindering the effective intervention. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Namaste. I'm Kushi Hang. Namaste. I'm Bhupesh Adhikari. Welcome to the show, Bhupesh. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, we're so glad to have you here uh, to talk about air pollution uh, and to frame it as the public problem and a policy challenge. But before we delve into that, let's begin with some myth-busting today because I think there's a very common lore that people in Kathmandu have held on to for a very long time where they believe that because the valley is shaped like a bowl, it is prone to trapping wind and loose particles within it, and air pollution is the destiny for Kathmandu. This comes up in conversations surrounding air pollution in the valley, and m- many people casually claim that the main reason we struggle with air pollution is because of this. So as a scholar of this subject, how much of this is true? Okay, so let me explain this with an example. We're in this room, a very cozy room. If you light a um, small incense here um, and then don't open the doors, the AC isn't running, after a while the room is filled with smoke, right? So even if you have a very tiny source of emissions, incense burning, uh, emitting particles, that situation compared with, suppose you're in a kitchen, but then you have a very effective hood, even if you're burning kilograms of wood, but if the kitchen hood is sucking air out, you're not going to have as much of smoke remaining in the room, right? So what that tells you is air pollution is a function, as in science language. Uh, It depends on the sources that are emitting these particles or pollutants, as well as meteorology that's regulating. So when we look at Kathmandu, Okay, emissions remain constant. You have your cars, you have emissions from your homes, garbage burning, all these different um, sources. But because the valley is surrounded, in winter, often it is difficult to transport the particles away, just like in a room that's shut. So it does add to, among other things, it does add to raising the concentration of pollution in the valley. So it's partly true. More so in winters compared to other seasons. Yeah, and it seems more of a problem in winter. And why is that? What's the science behind that? Okay, so usually where we're located, meteorology-wise, during winter, the winds are very calm uh, compared to monsoon where you get the monsoon winds uh, with rain. So rain washes some of the particles out, uh, Along with rain, you have high-speed winds, which will transport. Even if it is within the valley, you still get winds that will transport your particles. But in winter, we don't get that as much. Uh, the weather is very calm. And then if you're surrounded by big mountains, pollutions get stuck. And then, of course, there is a thing called inversion where hot air rises. But then if you have cooler air on top, pressing the hot air below, you don't get the movement that you want of particles away from the valley. Okay, so 
thanks for clearing that out. And I understand that although Kathmandu's topography does help in the process of trapping the pollution, there is more attention to be given to the emissions itself, right? Exactly. And so, I mean, yes, as I mentioned earlier, air pollution concentration, what that means is how much pollution is in the air, right? That depends both on your emissions as well as the regulating meteorology, right? So if meteorology is not supporting you or is going to support more higher concentration, then we need to have regulations in place that will lower emissions. Whereas, of course, you want to lower emissions for other issues as well, such as climate and all, uh, but more so when the meteorology is not conducive. This reminds me of the difference in how in the image of Kathmandu and how it used to be perceived and how it's perceived right now. Because for a person who grew up in this polluted version of Kathmandu, it feels like the dusty, suffocating reputation is something that's natural for Kathmandu. But um, when I talk to people who are older than me and who've lived here before my time, they talk to me about a Kathmandu that was totally different, right? So I think my question to you to set the scene for today is, how did Kathmandu's air become this polluted? Maybe we can draw parallels between the city's gradual development and the intensification of air pollution within it. I would say Kathmandu has grown quite fast. I wouldn't necessarily call it gradual development. Just a decade ago, if you look at the population and the green space that was available within the valley versus now, I would say it's growing at a rapid pace first. And then also unplanned growth. There are no open spaces. We're one of the capital that has very few trees, even if we boast about having made great progress on forest cover and area throughout the country with greenery. If you look at Kathmandu, we're way below any developing city or capital for that matter. But again, I mean, I think one of the issues is Yes, we're growing at a rapid pace, but with rapid growth, people don't really plan for environment and other issues. But now people are feeling the impacts of air pollution, waste management and all. And so there's consciousness is building up and people are going to do it. The wish was for people like us, this is how London did it, other cities did it. Couldn't we have leapfrogged? and then not get into the mess that we're now in, um, and then just had it done in such a way that we would have grown, at the same time not have had this, all these uh, environmental problems. Over the years, what would you determine as the main causes of air pollution in Kathmandu? Maybe in a percentage basis, what do you see are the main factors? Sure. So again, Environmental problems are very dynamic in nature, so there's no one number that remains constant or is even valid for that matter. You get approximate numbers, so I don't want to go into how much percent transport is uh, contributing or, say, the bricklands and others. These things are relative, but the major sources, in technical speak, are sources that are coming from homes, what we call the residential sector, Sources that come from industry, although in Kathmandu we don't really have uh, industries that burn fuel of uh, any type. Uh, most of the industries are non-combusting, hence not really uh, contributing to combustible air pollution uh, sources. Transport sector, obviously, burning all the fossil fuel, uh, diesel, petrol. Usually in other cities, it's um, agriculture and then energy production. But in Kathmandu, due to lack of space, we don't really have a lot of uh, agricultural issues. And then um, electricity is in Nepal is all hydroelectric, so we don't really uh, burn a lot of fossil fuel to generate electricity. And we do have a big problem uh, of garbage burning here in Kathmandu as well. Uh, partly because a lot of people think burning garbage is actually solving a waste management problem. All we're doing is transferring one waste from one sphere or form to another. And then other sources of pollution for Kathmandu is construction dust. Again, we, when we discuss later, that has a different type of pollution compared to when you're burning fossil fuel. 
Another major source of air pollution is forest fires, although it's very seasonal in nature. And then, of course, sometimes we do get transboundary air pollution from outside the valley, across the region, and sometimes even from faraway sources. I see. I think something that I found really interesting in your answer is how you kept emphasizing the temporal nature of air pollution, which begs the question, how is air pollution uh, measured, given the atmosphere is such a vast thing, and on top of that, the pollution problem is something that is sporadic and peaks every now and then. How, how do we go about measuring something like this? Thanks. And great question. Technically, we divide air pollution monitoring in three broad categories with instruments at some particular location, right? Uh, what we call in-situ measurements. We monitor air pollution these days also from satellite images because uh, satellites are able to detect certain types of pollutants, not all. And then we also estimate air pollution using mathematical models based on calculations with emission. In technical speak, it's called emissions inventory. You kind of estimate how much air pollution there is. All of these three different types have their own strengths and weaknesses. And so the general public wants to know, what is my air pollution today at this location at this time? Or they want to know, what is my air pollution going to be tomorrow at 3 p.m. at this corner? And again, I mean, that's what they want. But we can give an estimate, but not really precise answers, right? So the science is there to give you a very precise answer if you use measurements. But then that measurement is only measuring that particular area or some representative area. Whereas satellites can give you broad, regional, citywide, or even countrywide, or even continent-wide picture. But then it's not giving you air pollution at the street corner, so to speak. Right. So there are strengths and weaknesses, but we know enough uh, to build further actions. Uh, these tools do allow us to come up to an adequate level of air pollution measurements. I understand that it is based on these measurements that Kathmandu has ranked or consistently ranked the top 10 polluted cities in the world. Okay, I would say rankings in media headlines help to serve a certain purpose in that they make the public really aware about severity of some particular topic. But I wouldn't read too much into rankings. When they say, oh, Kathmandu is in the top 10, if you ask me, yes, we're polluted. Maybe that particular time and place, we are maybe higher in pollution level. But I wouldn't go and bet my money that we're top 10 or top 9 or top 7 because, again, the devil is in the details. How do you that Kathmandu is ninth and not 8th? And what's the error and how did you do the measurements? So I wouldn't read too much on the rankings at all. But then people still do it, and then it's based on a methodology, which I'm not really saying is wrong. But I don't say that these aren't useful. It helps serve a different purpose and uh, helps to get attention from people that otherwise wouldn't really read about air pollution and how big of a problem it is. I think that was a very insightful crash course to air pollution and measuring it, some things that we generally don't hear about uh, in mainstream media. But regardless of the extremities of measurement, air pollution has become a problem in Kathmandu. That's something that I think we can agree upon. And in the recent years, this has become a very significant part of life in Kathmandu. We've had schools closed because of the potential health risks of intense smog. Last year in 2023, there was a harrowing report from the Air Quality Life Index that shook the valley because it claimed that residents in Kathmandu are on track to lose an average of three years of their life expectancy. So given these growing impacts, what does it mean for the dwellers of Kathmandu that air pollution is at an all-time high or has grown increasingly concentrated in the valley? Okay, um, so let's look at a few things um, one by one, right? So our studies and a lot of studies have shown, not just Kathmandu, not just Nepal, in South Asia, 
particulate pollution is on the rising trend in the last two decades. This is a fact, right? So it's not just Kathmandu, but other cities and regionally as a whole, we are growing on each year, our particulate levels are going higher and higher. And particulate levels being the, the or number of particles in the air? Concentration. Con- concentration of mm-hmm. loose particles. I mean, when we talk about air pollution, there are two types, right? Primarily, there are particles in the air that are harmful to you, and then there are gases in the air that's harmful to you. So right now, we're talking about particles that are in the air that's harmful for you. And that's been growing in the last two decades. This is all scientists agree on that. And yes, we are losing precious days of our lives. And not just life lost, but also what the health professionals talk about is disability-adjusted life years. We often talk about, oh, how many people died or like six years of our, three years of our lives being shortened. But then we hardly talk about, oh, I'm coughing every day or, okay, it doesn't bother me. I go to work. I go to school. But, I mean, is it okay for you to cough or itch or have teary eyes every other day? Sure, you're still going to work, still going to school, but your life could be much better without these. So I think these are impacts that are not well understood by a lot of people, even within the valley. There have been studies even in Nepal with like impacts on air pollution on, say, cataracts or other severe kinds of disease. Right? Globally and regionally, there are, are studies where people have linked air pollution to diabetes, dementia. And, and I guess another myth uh, in South Asia is people tend to think air pollution impacts or you have respiratory problems at most when you're exposed to air pollution. And guess what? Almost two-thirds of the health problems are cardiovascular-related, such as B, heart attack, and all these other issues. And people hardly talk about it. Even when folks talk about air pollution and health impact, they usually talk about diseases related to respiratory illness or upper respiratory tract sort of issues. But let's say it in a simple way, air pollution impacts all the way from our brains down to your your whole body. So, I mean, it impacts a lot of different organs and in a lot of different ways. Mm. However, uh, most people don't really talk about air pollution four or five months of the year when it's monsoon and when the pollution levels are down, right? So it's not a problem then. In principle, I guess, in reality, also pollution levels go down during monsoon, so they don't really feel the need to talk. But I feel like, and this comes to a policy level or like action, what needs to be done, is that a lot of people in Nepal and in the region don't think that air pollution is a problem. Partly, like you said, when you introduced yourself earlier in one of the questions also, that it's always been like this, this is how I grew up. And then if we go into the rural area, People will say, hey, my grandmother cooked in smoky kitchen. This is how we lived. They lived to be 90 years old. It's natural. It's okay. I can live with it. Right? So, I mean, there are different perceptions and thinking on air pollution. But as a whole, people don't think it is a problem. Okay? Even if people do think it is a problem, there's a slightly misguided understanding in that cities are polluted and then the peri-urban environment, the moment you see like three trees around you and then you're in a park, people are like, oh, I'm breathing fresh air. Even within Kathmandu, I go to places like near Godavari or Budanil Kanta and the residents there will tell me, oh, it's cleaner here compared to Kathmandu. Yeah, maybe tiny bit. But as a whole, the whole valley is equally polluted um, as say in Ratna Park or New Rat. right? So I would say the first issue is that people need to recognize that air pollution is a problem. It is a severe problem for Kathmandu at certain seasons and certain times. And naturally, all of this 
is bound to have an effect on a person's social well-being or their productivity, right? And I remember this from a similarly intriguing conversation before in pods. This episode was on rising temperatures and fetal heat waves uh, with Aditya Pillai, where he talked about how our economic productivity and social well-being are the silent victims of environmental issues because we don't often make the connection of how the impacts on our health is gradually reflected in the economic or social scene of the country. Uh, recently, World Bank found that the negative welfare effects of air pollution in Nepal amount to more than 6% of the national GDP. But the discourse still is very limited to health. So based on your research, which has been more far-fetching than that, can you elaborate on this aspect of impacts of air pollution? Sure. As an atmospheric scientist, I, I wouldn't say enough, but there is adequate atmospheric science, air pollution-related data, and information coming off these data. What's really lacking in the region is data that we can correlate with health, right? One, like when I say high PM 2.5, like say these days, we have high air pollution. Do we have data from our hospitals, clinics, and medicine, medicine shops on what's the impact, immediate as well as long-term, right? On the health side of things, how many people are buying certain medication or how many people are visiting doctors or how many people... Okay, maybe people don't go visit doctors just when they're coughing a little bit, but they might go to stores to buy some sort of pain medication or just a reliever, right? So I feel like there's a lot of room for improving access to medical side of things first. So the information is not readily available. And even if it is, it's very uh, limited information that's available. Second, I think in Nepal, we don't really have, or at least I'm not really aware of long-term epidemiological studies. We don't follow a certain group of people or a certain sector of people for several years uh, with a particular impact or issue at hand, right? So whatever studies we've done with air pollution and health are very instantaneous or at a very short time span. So that's an area we need to do more, especially on the health side of things. And then I think hopefully that gives us more insights on the differentiated impacts of air pollution on different marginalized group or uh, different social strata of people. But having said that, based on regional evidence, global evidence, uh, there, there has been a lot of studies and also a few limited studies in Nepal uh, that do show how different sectors are differentially impacted. I think that's a really good uh, point that if we've reached in this conversation, which brings to mind a 2022 article by one of your colleagues, Amina Moharjan, wrote an article which showed that even within the urban population of Kathmandu, some groups are more vulnerable to air pollution exposure and its impacts than others. Can you briefly share how this works? What's the mechanism behind this? Sure. So again... Uh few facts, right? So air pollution, even within Kathmandu, like I said, there are places that are more concentrated. There are places that are slightly less. Overall, during polluted times, yes, the whole background air is almost similar, right? So if air pollution is not homogeneous within the valley, then we looked at, okay, if there are pockets that are more polluted, how is that impacting people that are involved in certain occupation or certain areas? And how do they cope with it or how do they, how severe is it? So these are things, like I said, uh, hasn't been studied in great detail. So that article that you mentioned is really seminal in that it tried to first look at different groups of people. Of course, certain sectors have been studied previously, like, say, traffic police. There's been several articles prior to this work. But we tried to look at different sectors, street vendors, traffic police. I think public vehicle drivers was a group in that study. Um, and we picked those people based on they're out in the streets or they're out in certain polluted environment. But again, we are yet to define 
how would we come up with who's like, so we're doing, I'm involved in another study where we're trying to come up with a framework and a methodology to define vulnerability. If we go into any city, how would we define who these vulnerable groups are? But again, is it always the traffic police or are there other sectors that we're missing out? And then how do we define those groups? So basically we're looking at occupations that are more likely to be exposed to air pollution and eventually their occupation choices or options are determined by their socioeconomic statuses. True. But again, I mean, I think more studies like these need to happen. We have done studies on, and others have done studies also on, like, say, the Brooklyn workers, just because it's very dusty environment, and then the Clins themselves earlier used to pollute quite a bit. Some still do now, so there's a lot of exposure there. So, again, there's occupational air pollution exposure, there's ambient air pollution exposure, there's air pollution exposure in indoor environments, and so, and then, again, there are different sectors of people that can, even if you're exposed, suppose I may be exposed to, say, air pollution in the streets, but then if I'm driving around in a car with AC with your windows rolled up, I have coping mechanisms or I have ways to deal with it. Certain people might not, right? And so it's more just, again, we need to look at risks, right? And how people can cope with certain, even if they're vulnerable, what are their coping mechanisms and how do they adapt to it? Moving forward with our conversations uh, on impacts, I think to gain a more holistic uh, understanding of this aspect, I think we need to make the link between climate change and air pollution. I don't want to give away too much. Can you just explain how these two aspects are linked? How do they affect one another? Sure. I think, at least in South Asia, a lot of people think it's the same and without knowing the details. And in a way, they're correct because climate uh, pollution and air pollution are similar in a lot of ways. Uh, but there are distinct differences. Again, and without going into technical details, uh, both have sources coming from combustion. So when you combust anything, ultimately you're going to get global warming gases such as carbon dioxide, but then you also get other pollutants. Right. So f- First, if you stop combustion, you help both climate as well as other pollutants, right? So whenever you think uh, of actions that help mitigate impacts of climate change, you're also helping to mitigate air pollution. Having said that, there are certain pollutants that also cool the environment, right? And so, again, you need to be a bit careful, we say, without understanding the details. But again, there are a lot of similarities between climate change and air pollution, although there are differences. But in, in general speaking, if we're doing any action, any mitigation uh, that will help climate, chances are it is going to help air pollution as well. And uh, what about the other way around? Uh, Is the rapidly changing climate in any way making it more difficult to mitigate air pollution? Like, I'm going back to the first time when you said there's an inversion in temperatures. Does that come into play? Sure. See, when weather modulates your air pollution, suppose even if you have very high emissions, look at it during monsoon, right? So it's not like we're stopping cars or we're cooking less or we're not burning garbage then. But then air pollution in monsoon is low because the rains wash out heavy particles, the winds blow it away from the valley and then dilute it somewhere else. Uh, And so for Kathmandu, even if you're emitting the same amount, you still have lower air pollution. Uh, So when climate changes your weather, it, it is going to have an impact on your air pollution level. Not so much from emission side of things, And then the other thing that climate change indirect ways would be there's projections that as we get warmer, we're going to get more forest fires. So that means you're going to get more burning. If you have more burning, you're going to have more particulate pollution, right? Another thing with climate change would be if you have uh, periods of extreme weather in that suppose if you have a very stagnant air and the air doesn't move anywhere even during, say, periods of monsoon or monsoon break, things like that then you're not going to wash away or transport all that pollution. So you are going to 
have issues with air pollution with changing climate. For now, we're not really sure how exactly, but then we're pretty sure, like, okay, as the climate warms, uh, as the earth warms, uh, we're going to have more forest fires. Hence, so if we're surrounded by forests, especially like our part of the world, you, if there's more burning, you're going to have more air pollution. Hi there, this is Somit Anupani from Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. We hope you're enjoying Pots by PEI. As you know, creating this show takes a lot of time and resources, and we rely on the support of our community to keep things going. If you've been enjoying the show and would like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you could become a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows listeners like you to support creators like us with a small monthly donation. Your support will go a long way in helping us continue creating high-quality content for you. So if you're interested in supporting our show and becoming a part of our community, head on over to Patreon and become a patron today. You can find us at patreon.com slash podsbypei. Every little bit helps and we can't thank you enough for your support. Now let's get back to the episode. Evidently, air pollution has so many multifaceted uh, impacts and it can be regarded as a true public problem that needs urgent and effective policy attention. So moving on to that front, can you illustrate what bodies of the state have a stake in this issue? Who are responsible, at least uh, for the air pollution in Kathmandu? Okay, in a simple way, I would say everybody. (laughs) Partly because air pollution... We call it a complex problem in that it's um, multiple air pollutants. So when you talk about air pollution, right, so we talk about particle pollution, gas pollution. Within particles, we can talk about uh, what's called total suspended particles. These are your big, big particles that arise when a truck uh, or a car goes by unpaved roads. Then there's uh, particles that we uh, separate by size, usually PM10, PM2.5, PM1. All that is uh, different types of particles, uh, and they have different sources that they originate from. So if the combustion is very high-tech, chances are you're going to get very fine particles. If the combustion technology is primitive or rather rudimentary, you're going to have a lot of high-sized particles. If you're burning diesel, you get certain types of particles versus if you're burning petrol. Right? So again, depends on the fuel, depend on the type of the combustion technology, right? So there's multiple types of air pollution. There's multiple sources of air pollution. So what does sources of air pollution mean? And, you know, coming back to your question, which sectors? If it's coming from residential sector, it's probably the local development, the wards, the municipalities that probably need to deal with it. If it's transport... Yes, the Ministry of Environment, but also Ministry of Transportation. If it's industry, so majority of environmental problems have a lot of sources, and that involves a lot of sectoral ministries and agencies to work together. Mm. Interesting, given it's such a cross-cutting issue. And the government has tried to bring about environmental uh, conservation policies And this has begun distinctly from mid-90s, where we've had a handful of bills, plans, and programs. I think it's not the best idea for us to go over all of them. But for you as as a keen observer and a scholar, what policy uh, developments have been significant to you and why? I would say for any complex problem, right, before you start mitigation or, like, you know, actions, yes, you can always start some action, but then... There's no way to verify what your actions did. So the first thing is you have to understand the problem and then measure quantitatively the extent of the problem, right? So in air pollution, while we started measurements in the early 2000s, it kind of stopped, and then now it's begun again. And so there's measurement monitoring stations all over Nepal now that give you an indication when the air pollution is high and it's now setting baselines in the last few years, what is our concentration levels year in, year out, right? So at least now we know where we stand. 
and and for air pollution, unlike climate change, a lot of solutions already exist. We don't really have to think about, oh, what is the technology or what do I do to improve air pollution from such and such sources. Those solutions exist. All we have to do is, okay, realize what are the real barriers for implementing these solutions and try to overcome those, right? And so going back to the key policies and all, I think it's great that we've restarted monitoring across Nepal. Okay, Now we know that, and this has been in the news for a while, that it's not just Kathmandu. There are times when other cities within Nepal are as polluted, if not higher in pollution levels than Kathmandu. So it helps realize the extent of the problem nationwide. A lot of times people think the issues are only revolving around Kathmandu Valley when the problems are similar elsewhere. Okay, so the second, I think, issue is for a complex problem, yes, okay, now we know the problem. Okay, we would have known without measurement, but we know quantitatively what the level of the problem is, right? And so to me, I think one great piece of legislation that hasn't really picked up steam, but I would still welcome it, and I still think it's great action forward in that a few years ago, the cabinet passed a law for reducing air pollution in Kathmandu Valley. The significance of that was that law was passed by the cabinet, which implies support from all sectoral ministries, right? And so, as you mentioned in your uh, previous question, after that law passed, yes, the Ministry of Environment and then the Department of Environment continue to do their work, but then in addition to that, the Education Ministry appealed, suggested closing down of schools, the Ministry of Health put out an advisory saying vulnerable groups, please be aware and take protective measures. It may sound like very small thing that's setting out advisory and not really doing work, but that's really setting the stage for interministerial, interdepartmental action on a particular topic, right? So it wasn't just the Department of Environment saying, oh, there's high pollution. Ministry of Education did something, Ministry of Health did something, right? And as a whole, informed the public and had a policy response to a problem at that time. We just need to do more of these, right? And then how do we coordinate better? And then how do we also do it in a way that leads to mitigation actions, actions on the ground together? I think with that answer, you've done a great job of explaining what's lacking or is inadequate and in what ways certain movements, actions, and policies have filled in those gaps. And before continuing on that train of thought, there's something uh, else that I want to uh, focus on for, for a little bit. Kathmandu Valley Air Quality Management Action Plan. This was a bill approved by the Council of Ministers in 2020. And uh, when this originally passed, there was a lot of hype around it. People were excited. The general discourse was very positive and excited. But today, even as I was researching on that particular action plan, I couldn't find much updates. So could you let us know Maybe first start by explaining the vision of this project and also explain where we are at right now. To me, this has been a great piece of legislation. It's great that for an environmental problem across ministries and then being passed by the cabinet, Uh, To me, that implies all ministries have okayed the bill and are willing to take the actions as per the plan, right? Again, I mean, we can debate on why the implementation and things aren't really moving at a speed that most people would want, and that's a different discourse, I think. But the fact that it's there, And when the law passed, even if it is a small action as in providing advisory from Ministry of Health, um, I think there's actions on the ground using that instrument. We just need to do more. 
And I think the other issue, and I think we need to bring this out as well, in air pollution, because it's such a complex problem, uh, first, there is a lack of awareness in air pollution. Yes, Kathmandu is polluted, but people think it's only certain pockets or certain times. So we have the data now to inform that it is polluted in other places, other times, and all that. But then another major problem with environmental issues, especially air pollution, it's not me, what I call it's not me, it's them attitude, right? So if I think about air pollution, I, I don't sit back and reflect what exactly am I doing or how am I contributing to that problem. We always brush it off by saying, oh, just stop the diesel cars, stop the factories, stop somebody else. And so what that leads to is when it's high air pollution, people will be like, oh, transport is not doing enough to stop the polluting vehicles. It's like, it's not just me. Look at the Bricklands. Uh, Bricklands will post, a, it's not just me. Look at all the people who are, you know, sitting by the street side, burning wood and warming themselves. It's not me. Look at all the garbage burning. So it's always them, right? And we have to flip that mindset to say, okay, what can I as an individual, what can my institution, what can my little community do, whatever little that we can do, to reduce the pollution that is contributing to the whole, right? And so I think that really has to happen for, again, policies like this. You can always, different ministries can always blame, oh, they need to do it before I do it, or mine is 2% or mine is 30%. But even if it is very little, what can we do to reduce that little amount? I think that is the attitude that is needed to act on environmental problems, especially for air pollution. I think so many great points have come up on identifying the gaps of our efforts. But something that I wanted to talk about ever since you mentioned how, at least for Kathmandu, the local atmosphere is very much affected by what happens regionally or in its neighborhood. The air we breathe is a very classic example of a regional good. And this idea really gets animated in Kathmandu. Um, where the southern and western borders of the country receives a lot of air from uh, India. So there truly is a need for transboundary awareness. But do we see that incorporated in our policies yet? Majority of Kathmandu air pollution is from Kathmandu. We did one study, again, that's contextual, different case, that time, that particular season. But then at that time, we quantified around 25% was regional, outside Kathmandu. Uh, 75% of it was within the valley, right? Again, these numbers are very contextual, so I wouldn't read too much of it. But the takeaway is a lot of the pollution from Kathmandu is from Kathmandu. Let's solve problems from within first. Then for additional, we look elsewhere to solve, right? So that's, I think that's first. Having said that, in border towns, in regional, what we call the Indo-Gangetic Plains, our Tarai states in northern India, all the way from Pakistan to Bangladesh, this fertile land that we have, it's very low-lying land, and the technical term is Indo-Gangetic Plains. Their winds pass, I mean, they don't respect borders, pollution from one place goes freely to another, so... It is truly a regional and transboundary problem. So for areas like that, we really have to work in a regional um, mindset. Okay, So like say, for example, you might have heard Delhi doing all these different mitigation action, yet it's not helping because that's another classic example of how regional problem is even uh, impacting a megacity. Classically, in the earlier times, people thought pollution from cities impacts rural areas. But here's a classic example where regional problem has significant impact within a dense megacity. It's important, again, very seasonally, not all the time. As I said, in winter, we have very calm winds, so we're not getting pollution from India coming to our part of the world. Whereas in pre-monsoon and post-monsoon season, when the winds are there and then there's significant open burning happening or forest fires happening, yes, we do get 
pollution from long-range sources. And do our policy efforts reflect that currently? Okay, so great question. Yes, in the early 2000s, Nepal and I think majority of the South Asian countries signed a declaration called Malay Declaration. Okay, it's not so much active these days, but that whole declaration, it was signed in Malay, hence the Malay Declaration, but talked about transboundary air pollution and the need for regional cooperation uh, with data sharing and then identify actions at a regional level. So, yes, it's been in the radar, and yes, it's been in policy discourses within Nepal and in regional, um, but we don't really have a strong and active framework currently in place. And then again, Malay was a voluntary kind of arrangement. It's not legally binding, and so... If we really need to have strong actions, then we probably need a binding legal policy instrument to look at this problem at a reasonable scale. From a non-state route, uh, I think a very interesting project is the Kathmandu Roadmap Project, and this imagines a transboundary collaboration. Can you share how that framework is, just so that our listeners can get a taste of what a transboundary collaboration could possibly look like? Sure. So the it's not a project yet. Okay. So the Kathmandu Roadmap is basically um, a start of achieving a vision of clean Indo-Gangetic plains and Himalayan foothills. So basically all the IGP countries where in South Asia, People say, okay, South Asia is polluted, but it's the IGP planes that are high in pollution outside of the megacities. And then, again, it's all the way from Pakistan, India, Nepal, southern parts of Bhutan, Bangladesh. So these countries, right, and the fertile cities such as Kathmandu, right, uh, which is equally polluted. So the roadmap, again, envisions that at times it needs to be tackled at a regional level. perspective, regional action, and then coordinated actions at a regional. And so in the absence of a legal binding framework, can we, these countries, work together to tackle this problem, at least our, show our intent to work together? And how do we do that is by having periodic science policy dialogue. Because again, air pollution is a very complex issue that has a lot of need for scientific data and assessments. So policymakers need to have that discourse with scientists to really understand what actions are needed based on evidence, not based on haunches and what people prefer to do. And then so we envision in that roadmap, we meet regularly And then if the governments were to allow that we start sharing data and information, including technologies, so that we can work at a regional level um, to solve the problem. In a simple language, it's kind of like this. If we think regionally burning primitive fuel is a problem, you know, Suppose if Nepal tries to clean up its bricklands, uh, India tries to clean up their cement factories, Pakistan is working on transport, where the science is showing, okay, you need to tackle the residential sector. Yes, you're going to get some improvement, but not a substantial uh, improvement if all countries said, okay, let's tackle air pollution coming from the residential sector with these technologies across the region in a very coordinated fashion. You're going to get more bang for the buck, more immediate actions as a result. And then people believe that these actions are working and hence they'll do more to do. And so hence you get this multiplier effect and you really get substantial reduction in air pollution. Otherwise, if 10 different projects do 10 different things, yes, it does. But then you're not able to attribute the net reduction of air pollution and people think that it's not working and then that's not a problem. As I listen to the uh, way transboundary coordination is being imagined in this Kathmandu roadmap, I'm really excited to see how it unfolds. But to continue our conversation, I think we've talked exhaustively about what places we're lacking, but to also sympathize with the state and to understand what stays 
in its way, I think it's important for us to understand the impediments that the state faces. Maybe there are some financial or infrastructural shortcomings that are hindering the state from addressing air pollution. Uh, are you aware of any of those? I mean, yes, f- resources are always limited, right? I mean, it's not just Nepal, but for any country first. So there's always the resources issue. But then even within the available resources, how do we coordinate and put best use of that resource? So how do we do actions based on evidence and science and not what a particular person thinks or has particular favorites or favorite project in, right? So first, resources are limited, but that's true everywhere. That shouldn't be the excuse for inaction. Second, how do you plan actions based on evidence and not hunches? Third, how do you get do it in a coordinated way, in a collaborative way, so that you get most bang for your buck? So I think these are problems that uh, not necessarily only for air pollution in a lot of policy implementation issues. And so these are challenges when, if you look at Nepal, for example, we're still grappling with political issues, with federalism and all. And then, so having said that, it's not like we're not doing things. Yes, we are doing certain things, but we want to pick up speed and scale. That's the main issue. The problems are real. The problems are now. But how do we pick up that speed and scale that's required? I think I agree with you on the on your first point that the shortcomings of your resources aren't excuses enough. And this brings in a very interesting piece of finding to my head that ever since 2008, the state has been collecting clean air tax on fossil fuels. And according to different sources, the state has accumulated approximately $12.81 billion. So we do have some funds at our disposal that could be used. Now, I'm not going to ask you the common question, which is why has the state not done anything? Because I think to some parts of our knowledge, we do know why. But as a person who's been following this issue so closely, what do you think are some of the ways in which this fund could be channeled? What are some of the most urgent um, areas where this fund could be transferred? Great question. And um, I would answer in a way that gives the benefit of doubt to government, right? So yes, we we have an instrument to collect funds, but I'm not really sure if we have developed an instrument on how to disimburse the funds, right? So first of all, as I understand public policy, working with governments and partners, you need to have these methods and protocols in place where they can distribute this money, right? So in the absence of that, first, there is a lack of instrument on how to uh, distribute these funds. Second, we need to also look at, uh, is it only specific to air pollution? If you look at taxes or collection of funds that our government has done, there are other projects where we're collecting taxes, and I could name a few, but where the money hasn't gone for the purpose, right? And so what are the barriers in that, yes, we're very quick to collect funds on certain headings, but really slow to allocate those funds to that particular project. So what is that barrier? And why don't people that are looking at public policy, the economics, and those sort of things, work with government to frame such methodologies to spend that. I think uh, rather than saying it's not being spent, uh, if we say, okay, you could spend it like this, and here's A alternative, here's B, here's C, and here's how you would trickle the money down, I think then the government would be forced to make a decision on whether A is a good option, B or C. In the absence of any viable mechanism it's just something that we raise, but then since there are other pressing issues for the government, these don't get around to building that framework. Like you said, it would be more constructive to give the, or suggest uh, some alternatives to the government, right? So 
From a personal point of view, what would your alternatives for the funds be? You have to realize in air pollution, actions are from multi-sector, such as if you want to clean up transport, you have to give it to the transportation ministry. Again, so how do you get these multi-sectoral actions uh, focusing on a particular topic? And it's not a unique problem. And you can, and this is where cross-boundary and learnings from elsewhere comes in place. You know, India has set up a commission uh, that works with different ministries to tackle air pollution. You know, and so they're uh, spending a lot of money uh, again through budgetary allocation on tackling air pollution. Of course, it helps other sector, other uh, impacts such as climate change and all. But they have begun to think uh, like these resources are allocated to work on air pollution issues. Similarly, China did something similar, right? So, as I said, solutions exist, both technological as well as financial or public policy instruments. We can always learn from them and then start the process. Of course, you always need to adapt to our country, our specificity and all that. But let's begin. And yes, we've already started collecting the tax. Let's begin with some allocation, and then we can always refine it. Yeah. Mm, okay. So aligning our conversation with the larger global discourse on climate change, how have you observed Nepal's commitment to climate change discourse has shaped or added to the air pollution mitigation efforts in Kathmandu? Question. <laughs> Okay, being a student of climate change as well. Climate change, as being discussed elsewhere in, around the globe and in Nepal, is probably the single biggest threat for our existence right now, right? Having said that, there's also triple planetary crisis engulfing the world, including Nepal, in that climate change, biodiversity loss, and pollution, right? And so, yes, Climate change is the most, but then so is air pollution, uh, so is biodiversity loss. And in comparison to the other two, uh, globally as well as in Nepal, I think there is very little discourse on pollution, uh, partly because air pollution is not so severe in the developed nations, right, as in U.S. or, say, Europe. And so if there, if it's not a big problem there, you don't get a lot of buzz from there, right? So for us who are so used to being guided by what's the global discourse and all, um, if you don't really hear a lot of headlines or news or workshops or events or big gatherings around air pollution, people tend to think that it's not a problem. But for us, it is. It is a big problem. Uh, it's impacting our lives now. Sure, we're already seeing impacts of climate change now. And I don't think it's gotten the attention that it deserves. And why do I say that? If you look at the SDG, there's not a single indicator related to air pollution. Yes, there are sub-indicators within climate action or life on land or energy, but there's no SDG on air pollution, right? Even though, as you mentioned, people are losing lives, people are having premature deaths in the millions annually. And that's an opportunity I think air pollution folks, people working on this area missed out. Having said that, I think it is getting prominence in the last I would say half a decade or so, in that air pollution is being widely discussed now in global environmental workshops and negotiations. It is a significant issue within the context of climate change as well as biodiversity. Um, but the issue is that because we don't have a global treaty like the or the global framework uh, on air pollution or pollution, it's not getting that recognition that it deserves. Uh, not just globally, our part of the world, again, we don't have any regional treaty or convention or a program uh, that is legally binding for nations to act on air pollution. 
So we really need to press for that because that's impacting us now. It's impacting us quite a lot. It's impacting our health, economy, I mean, our everyday lives. So I think uh, we really need to create that demand internally uh, through awareness, through programs like this, so that we have that instrument in place to work on it. That, that's a very interesting answer. And it's a very familiar narrative, the fact that the problems of the global South aren't always uh, represented in the international arena. But that put aside, I think what, imp- what was interesting for me was the fact that recently, quoting you, in a decade or so, there has been some traction in this front. I think it would be interesting to know who has been behind this, who has been driving the force behind bringing air pollution as an important aspect in global discourse? And how can we strengthen that voice further? I think the fact is, as we gear towards 2030 and trying to meet that Millennium Development Goals and all, when these assessments are coming out, what's impacting people globally, all of a sudden air pollution is killing a lot of people or like is contributing to premature death. It's impacting your climate. It's impacting your biodiversity loss. So while even while people are working on climate, they realize, okay, air pollution and climate, or while they're working on biodiversity, it's air pollution and climate. When you're talking about chemicals, okay, air pollution. So it's in there, but not centrally. So that's, and, and, and a lot of people all of a sudden realize that this is missing. And again, part of the problem is also classical. In in the classical knowledge, air pollution was always treated as a local problem to be dealt by local governments or agencies, right? But with advent of satellite in our internet and computing infrastructure, we have evidence that, yes, it's a local problem at source, but then it impacts often in certain places, it impacts the whole region. And then that regional air pollution has some contribution to climate, weather, or biodiversity loss. And then again, there are uh, air pollution monitoring tools, as you first began the discussion with, where we can track pollution from one part of the globe circulating the entire globe and reaching somewhere else. So now all of a sudden, it is also part of a global problem, right? And I think that attitude has changed in that air pollution is no longer a local problem to be dealt by uh, local government. It is a development problem, okay? Uh, Because if you also think about Nepal, if you look at water issues, how many development partners or how many NGOs or CBOs or... uh, civil societies work on, say, wash or water-related problems compared to air pollution, right? And why is that the case? Because earlier, air pollution wasn't really uh, well thought of as a developmental challenge. It was a local problem to be dealt by local governments. And so now that's changing, and that narrative is changing. It is a development problem. It starts with local, but is a re- often a regional problem and at times a global problem. Mm. So in, in many ways, the problem itself is growing so severe that it's demanding attention. Globally, uh, yes. Yeah. We're almost at the end of our conversation, but before I let you go, I, as an atmospheric scientist, are there any impressive innovations in policy or in practice in the global or regional arena that you are really excited about and think that Nepali policy could learn or benefit from them? The reason air pollution is rising is first, awareness. Second, it's us versus them. The third, people don't think that you can do anything about it when there's lots of evidence that show that you can develop and have your air pollution go down. China is a great example. Cities in China are continuing to develop, are growing economically at a very high um, rate, but yet in the last decade or so, their pollution level has either stabilized across the country or gone down. 
So yes, it, you can have rapid development and reduction in air pollution. Again, I think for me, the narrative that's changing that air pollution is a problem, it's a complex problem. We need science and evidence to guide our policy. I think that's building. And I think government agencies are accepting that and internalizing that concept. And the nice thing with air pollution is solutions do exist on any particular source or problem. If solutions exist and there's opportunity to learn from elsewhere, again, let's break the barriers that are hindering implementation and let's work on speed and scale. Um, I think, yes, it's not enough to just say we're working on it. We need massive action now and at scale. So this is why a lot of times the discussion is on Kathmandu air pollution. Yes, Kathmandu is severely polluted, but so is the rest of the country. And so we need to think beyond the valley and work across the country. And which, in again, will help Kathmandu as well through transboundary uh, issues. Yeah, I think that's a really good note to end on. Thank you so much, Bhupesh, for joining us today at Pods, sharing your knowledge and experience. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting, and it's been a pleasure discussing with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed Kushi's conversation with Bhupesh on the air we breathe, understanding Kathmandu's air pollution problem. Today's episode was produced by Kushi Hang with support from Nirjan Rai and Ridesh Sapkota. The episode was recorded at PEI Studio and was edited by Ridesh Sapkota. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakya from Jindabad. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. To catch up on the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at Tweet2PEI. That's Tweet followed by the number 2 and PEI. And on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs INC. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Shuvangi. We'll see you soon in our next episode.